Good morning, church. What's going on? Uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. A lot of you are probably watching online. We got a lot of people here in person, surprisingly, with the cold temperatures. So um, if you're joining us online or in person, we're uh, super excited to open God's Word. We're going to get right after it this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 11. We've got an exciting morning for you. Um, obviously, kicking it off with some great worship. Um, we're talking about head coverings. We're getting, I mean, we're uh, celebrating baptism. I mean, what else do you want? What else could you ask for in a church service? You want end times? We could probably hit that later. Um, what other controversial things, exciting things? Okay, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians 11. If you have a Bible, open up. And I want to start with this, with this uh, question here. How do we respond to a culture that is confused about sexuality. How do we respond? Are we, we, I don't have to convince you that our culture is a little bit confused on sexuality. That's what we're talking about this morning. What it means to be male and female. Last, a couple weeks ago, Ames, Iowa School District had a Black Lives Matter at school week of action. And on their website, they talked about 13 guiding principles um, and so I'm just quoting from their website a lot of things, guiding principles that we could get excited about as a church. I mean, justice, empathy, loving engagement, diversity. Who's not for those things? But then it gets to, um, you know, principle six, talking about queer affirming. We are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. Uh, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. We want to free ourselves from this idea of male and female and, and that men should uh, marry women and, and be in these hetero, this kind of heteronormative thinking. Uh, principle seven says that, that you know, we are committed to uh, doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. We are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Even the word cisgender assumes this idea of gender being a choice. It's something you choose. So cisgender means that your sense of personal identity corresponds to your, your uh, birth sex. So, so if you're a male, you, then you have your, your sense of identity corresponds with maleness and so on and so forth. But just saying the word cisgender assumes that gender is something that you choose. Every human chooses that themselves. I think we're a little bit confused on this. And when you think about the world, I think our feet are firmly planted in midair, right? Like what do we place our feet on? So the question, is gender a choice? How do we respond as the church? Even reading this off the Ames School District website, um, it's complicated, right? For parents, we have kids in our school district, and, and this, is, this is certainly uh, pretty pervasive in, in public schooling. But the question of how do we respond? So my contention is we are going to open this book, and this is, we're reading Corinthians. It's to the church in Corinth. And what we're going to find is that Paul is not going to start lobbing missiles at the Corinthian culture and saying, you need to go correct uh, those pagans out there. No, he is talking to the church. And so our response to what's happening out there 
is to focus on what's happening in here, the church. How are we supposed to be as the people of God? Jesus said, uh, you are the salt of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, you're no longer good for anything, right? You are the light of the world. The way that we represent Jesus in this darkness is to just be the light. The church just needs to be the church. We need to be that colony of heaven in this country of death. And so that's what we're focused on. Now, if you're watching or you're listening this morning, maybe someone invited you, you came to see the baptisms, or you just happened to click on this link and watch in this service. What I want to say is, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I don't expect you to agree with this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I think these words are for us. And if you're not a believer, I hope, or a follower of Jesus, I hope that that as you're listening in, there will be something that connects with you and that you will discover your identity and how God has created you. So let's get right to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, No, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Let's stop here. We're going to work through this passage. We're going to read a lot of confusing things, and we're going to try to make sense of it as we walk through. The first thing to get clarity on understanding this passage is to answer this question, what does Paul mean by the word head? What does that word mean? Well, we look at how is this word used in other places in Scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, he says, God subjected everything under his feet, that's under Jesus' feet, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. He's saying Jesus is the authority over the church. Like the authority of the church is not me. The authority of the church is not ultimately even the elders. The authority over the church is Jesus Christ. He goes on in Colossians 2.10, He says that Jesus is the head over every ruler and authority. So every human authority that exists, kings, queens, presidents, governors, Jesus Christ is head over them. It means he's their authority. He's the final authority over angels, over demons, everything. He is the head. Now, here's a question that we have to ask. Is this passage culturally relative to Corinth. In other words, does this text and what we're about to read not apply to us because it's only written to the, it's written to the Corinthian church? And we say, oh, times have changed. America is different. Here's my response to that question or maybe even objection to what we're going to talk about. Paul is basing his argument there in verse 3. Listen, he says, God is the head of Christ. So everything that he's about to tell us is based on this argument about who God is. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who we believe God is. Now, when it comes to church, what's the one thing that we cannot be wrong about? We, we, could, be wrong about, we could be right about a lot of different things. But if we get this one thing wrong, 
nothing else really matters. We're kind of wasting our time. What is that one thing? It's the question, who is God? You might say, that's the most important thing about Veritas Church. Who do we believe God is? Well, I think what we're going to discover is that if we get this male and female thing wrong, we will distort who God is. And that might be something that the world is saying, why do you Christians have to take this male and female thing so seriously? And it's because of this verse right here. It's that if we get that wrong, we might get God wrong. Okay, so think about this. He's saying God is the head of Christ. How do we make sense of this? Wait, there's the Father who's the authority over Jesus? Wait, what does this mean? Okay, Christians believe Father, and Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in essence. They are one being, right? They are equal in value and worth and essence. They are one in essence, but they are different in their roles, right? So we don't say, well, there's the Father up here, and then under the Father is Jesus. He's just a little less important than the Father, and then under Jesus, we've kind of got the Holy Spirit. I know it's weird. He's kind of Jesus Jr., right? And so, no, we don't think of God that way. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's this, it's this beautiful union. And so we start with this first point, if you're taking notes. The creation of male and female reflects who God is and demonstrates that, a, that diff, a difference in role does not mean a difference in worth. Okay, that's the first point, that the creation of male and female reflects who God is and demonstrates that a difference in role does not mean a difference in worth. Let me illustrate. Who's the most important person on the Iowa Hawkeye basketball team? Now, you might say Luca Garza, right? Uh, maybe player of the year, this amazing uh, player. Well, there's a lot of other people, right? There's important players. I like little Joe Toussaint. You know, the guys can't be six foot, right? The guy's like, I don't know. He's so quick. He's shifty, the little guard, and brings the ball up the court, dribbles in and out around the baseline, and he's weaving in and out of traffic. And, you know, being a little bit lower to the ground probably gives him a little advantage in dribbling, right? It's going to be harder to get the ball. He's quicker. And his job is to throw it in to Luca Garza, who basically just goes down there, stands about two feet from the hoop, and turns around and, and puts it in. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing, right? When the Hawkeyes are working as a team, and there's a ton of other players that are all doing their different roles, right? Now, what if Luca Garza said, no, I'm the most important one, uh, and goes down to the baseline, is like, pass it in. Come on. And, and brings it up the court, is trying to break the press and do all this stuff on his own, what's going to happen? This is going to be the most dysfunctional team there is, right? Th this is the basic idea of God, is that he is the most beautiful plurality. But there's a difference in roles, okay? Now, as we move through this passage, let's, let's, that's kind of the foundation is that that God is the head of Christ, head meaning authority, equal in worth, and different in roles. Look at verse four. So every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head 
dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Because that makes, all, makes perfect sense, right? We all get that. Just not, no. It, you probably are like, hey, Mark, could you say that again in English? Okay, we have no idea what you just said. We are all confused. Let, let me try to make sense of what he's saying. What he's saying, in their culture, short or shaved hair was considered shameful because it looked, it made a woman look like a man. So he says in verse 15 at the end that long hair is a, is a woman's glory. And glory means like honor. And so he says, therefore, there should be this head covering while the woman is, is praying or prophesying. So what is the head covering? Uh, is that a way of styling your hair? I mean, prostitutes in that culture would wear their hair down. Uh, maybe it's, it's a way of braiding your hair or wearing it up. Likely, it's an idiom for some type of external cloth or like a, a shawl or something like that. Not like uh, what you think, might think of with like a full-on burqa or something um, in Muslim culture, but it would be more of just a, a shawl to cover the head. Uh, well, what does that mean for us? What is the principle here? Uh, if you're taking notes, the second point is this. We honor God as our creator when we dress like a man or a woman. I think this is what Paul's saying. We honor God as our creator when we dress like a man or a woman. So imagine this. Let me illustrate this. If I were to walk up here and you notice me kind of fumbling around up the steps trying to get up and, and you're like, well, that's weird. He's walking with a limp. And then you realize it's because I'm wearing high heels. And I walk out with my heel, high heels and also I'm wearing a dress. What would you say? What would you think? And I'm just like, okay, Veritas, open your Bibles. We're in. You'd be like, wait, this is, this is not right. At that point, you're not just making a statement of preference like, well, that doesn't look good on Mark, right? No, you're saying like, I, it's not that I just don't like that. I'm saying that there's something actually wrong about that picture. Okay, that's exactly what Paul's saying. Doesn't nature itself teach you this? Like there's things in our culture that represent like femininity, masculinity. And he's saying you should dress accordingly. But in Paul's language, he would say this. If he were talking to me, he would say, Mark, when you dress like that, you are dishonoring your head. Remember, heads means authority. You are dishonoring Jesus Christ when you dress like that because you are ignoring the most basic fact about yourself, that you are a man, but you're dressing like a woman. You are suppressing the truth about God in the way that you are expressing yourself. Does that make sense? That, those verses that we just read, I think that's what Paul means in this idea of the head coverings and, and praying and prophesying with, with head coverings. Now, let me just make a quick rabbit trail. I think this is so cool that in the first century church, like women in their corporate gatherings are praying and prophesying. They had a huge role in what was happening in the church. I think we 
uh, as the church, make a huge mistake when we diminish or minimize the role of women in the church. I think it's so cool. Uh, for example, Lauren, um, she wrote the song Psalm, Psalm 23. A couple weeks ago, she sang it over communion. And um, I love it when Lauren or any of the women pray. I mean, there's just something beautiful about a, a woman praying. And sometimes different people that pray, like, connects with you in a soulish, different way. And, and Lauren shared about Psalm 23, and she, she sang it. And um, uh, Teresa Dodge's uh, brother um, just lost his wife uh, a few weeks ago. And um, uh, Jeff and Teresa got a text from her brother, Terry, it was after, or maybe even after this, that service where Lauren was singing Psalm 23. And Jeff was like, Terry, you gotta, you gotta watch this. You gotta check this out. And Terry's like, yeah, I, I did. And I was on my knees just weeping, you know, as Lauren sang this psalm over me. Isn't that beautiful? Like the way that a woman, I think, like Lauren just uniquely expresses the heart of God in such a cool way. I think that's a form of kind of what Paul's talking about here. But look at verse seven. He says, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. Now remember glory, this word means honor. There's, there's something that, a way that, that she honors the man. For Verse eight, for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Okay, if any of you were looking for proof uh, that the Bible was written by a bunch of male chauvinists, this is your passage, okay? <laughs> Write this one down, highlight this one. This will be useful in your uh, New Testament class on campus. No, here's, we have to understand what Paul is saying. Listen to what he's saying. Verse, uh, he, he is going back to Genesis 1, and he's referring to the creation account. Now, if you're a Christian, you should know Genesis 1 through 3, I mean, inside and out. Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundation of the Christian worldview. How did we get here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? Those worldview questions, they're all answered in the first three chapters. And we have to understand what Paul is saying. Look at Genesis 1.26. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this simple verse, we learn three things. We came from God. We resemble God. And we are male and female. And in verse 26, he, he goes on, he says, let them rule. Let them rule. So together, this male and female partnership are going to be this amazing team that has authority over creation. He goes on in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So he puts Adam to sleep, does surgery, takes a rib. Adam wakes up, verse 23, and the man said, 
this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. That's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 11. This beautiful, uh, this song, really, if you're, if you're reading in your Bibles, you'll see like it's this, these verses in Genesis 2 are indented. That means this is Hebrew poetry. This is like, this is saying, this is the crescendo. This is the climax of God's creation is this woman. She's like the crown jewel of, of God's creation is this woman. And the man sings and says, whoa, like I'm complete now. Look at God made someone that's corresponding to me. This is what Paul means when he says, the woman was created for the sake of man. He's saying, a man without a woman, it's, it's not a good thing. They are a team. One complements the other. This one flesh union of marriage reflects who God is. We display to the world the beauty of one in this union and this different roles that reflects God. I was also thinking, um, going back to Teresa's brother, Terry, uh, he texted them. This was after the funeral, after everyone went home. He said, I've heard that the ultimate pain of hell is the separation from God himself. I get it now in a smaller way. A man in his 50s, having raised a family with this woman. And he goes home to an empty house. And there's just that feeling that this is not the way it was supposed to be, right? We know that. And all of a sudden, we go back to Genesis 2, and we can look at that situation, and we can just... In our, in our gut, we can feel this is not good. You know, a lot of you might be feeling that. You know, maybe you've suffered loss. Maybe you've experienced or gone through divorce and you felt this isolation and aloneness. Maybe you're single, you, you want to be married and, and you feel that. I mean, we can balance this with the tension of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul himself was single and saying, that's good. But I think here he's going back to Genesis 2 and saying, there is a sense in which this is kind of, this is not good for a man to be alone. That's what he means when he said, a woman was created for the sake of man. There's a, there's a completeness that happens. Verse 10 This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And I don't even need to explain that because that's so obvious what he means. Actually, we have no idea what he means by that. Because of the angels, head coverings, I don't know. It it doesn't seem to follow. Maybe he means uh, that there's something about the angelic realm that reflects this created order. We don't know for sure. Verse 11, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. Man is not independent of woman For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. This verse is so important because it comes as a rebuke to any man who thinks that his role is more important. Paul is emphasizing here that every man, except Adam, so every man in this room 
derived their life from a woman. The woman is the one who gives life, in a sense. And so Paul's argument here is that the woman's role is so important. She is not inferior to a man in any way. In fact, the two are interdependent. And the reason he ends his argument here is to say, hey, listen, man comes through woman and all things come from God. That's the ultimate humble pill is that like my breath, my life comes from God himself. We all derive our life from the Lord. Okay. And he ends verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. You know, one of the reasons we can't dismiss this as cultural is because Paul himself in this passage says, listen, this isn't just for you guys, Corinth. This is for all the churches. This is for Veritas Church. So let me just try to bottom line what I think Paul means here with all this back and forth about headship and head coverings and all this. Here's the big idea if you're taking notes, is that men and women, though equal in value or worth, have different roles. And this should be reflected in the church. When we gather we should, just, we should not just be an androgynous society with no male or female distinction. Basically, Paul's saying, when I come to Veritas Church, I want to know that there's a difference between men and women. I want to be able to see it in the way that you dress, in the way that you carry yourselves, in the way that you do church. But here's the million-dollar question. What does this mean for us? What does 1 Corinthians 11 mean practically for you, for me? There's three things that I want us to think about. Number one, by way of application, display your male or female identity in the way that you dress. That's just a low-hanging fruit here. (laughs) Display your male or female identity in the way that you dress. Paul says here that nature itself teaches us this, right? This is not a human construct, male and female. We didn't just make this up, right? Like some culture out there discovered male and female and just all the cultures just happened to do it. This is not a social construction of reality, male and female. Like we can just decide to do something different. Oh yeah, we don't believe in male and female anymore. Let's try that out which is essentially what our culture is doing. Well, tell me how it works out, okay? Because you just can't undo something that God has hardwired in us. It's given by God, our gender, our sex, our male and femaleness. But here's a question in the way that you dress. What does that look like? Like what kind of hairstyle and clothing makes someone look male or female differs from culture to culture, right? We know this. I mean, going back to Samson, remember? Samson took the Nazarite vow, grew his hair out. Everyone knew he was a dude, right? Nobody thought he was a woman when he, like, destroyed animals and and pushed down pillars to temples, right? Uh, 
he had taken a vow. Like even in Hebrew culture, longer hair is a thing. Uh, we think about the missionary Hudson Taylor. He had really short hair in China, um, and he couldn't reach people with the gospel. And finally, he realized all the men had long braided hair. So he got long hair and braided it, and they're like, oh, you're a dude, right? <laughs> okay, different things for different cultures, right? We get it. So this application to this is not necessarily, hey, women with short hair, grow it out, right? Because we all know there's feminine short haircuts, right? We, we know that. The application is not just put a shawl over your head. The application is, can somebody tell which gender you are in the way that you dress? We've all seen very feminine short haircuts, feminine jeans, all those types of things. We've also seen masculine dudes with long hair. We've seen dudes with skinny jeans. That can be argued, okay? Um, I'll leave that for your connection groups, okay? Um, but in this, there's a deeper layer, isn't there? Isn't there like a deeper layer to this? Like, okay, let's close in prayer. Just dress differently or dress like a man or a woman, right? No, we all know that there's something deeper here. And it's this question, what gives you value as a person? What gives you value? What gives you that sense of like, I'm important, I matter? Because in the world, the way that you derive value is in, I look in the mirror and I say, nobody tells me who I am. That's where I get my value. I get my value in my own autonomy. My desires give me meaning. Like I have these desires and I live them out and nobody can tell me what to do. Maybe that's how someone in the world gets meaning. Maybe someone in the world gets value from the authority that they have, their position. Like I'm important because I'm in a position of power and I have employees that I tell what to do. And I don't have anybody over me. I don't have headship. I'm at the top of the ladder. I'm the CEO. I'm the president. I'm the whatever. And that's what gives me meaning is that I'm a powerful, important person. What about us as believers? Where do we get our value from? Our value comes from this simple fact. We know that we were created by an infinitely smart God who loves us deeply. We were created by God who knit us together in our mother's womb. Psalm 139 says, before a thought comes into our head, he knows it from afar. Like it's like, there's this thought, God knows it, God knows it, boom, it hits my head and then I know it, right? Like that's how much God knows us. And that gives us value. Like, I don't need a position of authority to prove that I matter. I don't need to walk into a room and everyone goes, ooh, he's in the room, right? She's in the room. We, that doesn't give us this sense of value. And that is great news because guess what? That frees us to play our role in the family of God. Because we know who we are, that frees us. And so the second point of application is this. Christian freedom is a freedom to honor and serve, not 
dominate and use, right? Because if my value comes from being powerful, then I look at people as useful. Like, how can I use that person to get to the next level? How can I use that person to get tenure? How can I use that person to get elected? How can I use that person to get some money? Christian freedom, knowing this truth about 1 Corinthians 11, it frees us to give honor and to serve other people, not to power over and use them for our purposes. One of our greatest fears as humans is submission. We are terrified of submission to authority. And you know, I can understand that fear. I think about the Me Too movement. And I have compassion for that movement and an understanding. Um, in, uh, in college, I uh, studied rhetoric, and a lot of my uh, professors were, were feminists. And I have a soft spot in my heart for feminists and the feminist movement because it's a response to a horrible thing in our culture. Like, Male aggression and dominance and the oppression of women. We see this portrayed in movies, in TV series, trying to expose the, the sexual abuse, the oppression of women in corporate America and Hollywood and politics. There's a sense in which the feminist movement makes sense, right? We can look at uh, the, the progress in our culture and kind of celebrate that. Like a woman officiating the Super Bowl. That's pretty cool. Like women, sports, athletics, all those things. Like we can celebrate those things. But listen, we do not have to fear submission to authority. Here's why. Submission to authority is how we got saved. Right? Remember John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent his son into the world. God the Father, in this beautiful triune God, somehow he said, Jesus, it's time for you to go to the earth on this rescue mission. And what did Jesus say? Who are you to tell me what to do? No, he came to seek and to save lost people. And Paul says, this is mind-blowing, but he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We were saved through the submission of Jesus Christ. So we as Christians don't have to fear submission to authority. If our teacher, our master, submitted himself to death, crucified under Pontius Pilate, then we do not have to fear submission. So we're just left with the question, if our value comes from God and we're free to serve, the question for us then is, so how can we use our God-given role to honor Jesus Christ, to bring glory to Jesus? Well, one of the ways that I have to honor my head, Jesus, is by 
teaching this passage from 1 Corinthians 11. I would rather not teach this passage. I would at least like to shut off the online, right? Because that's going to get out, right? No, but that's just God's word, right? We can't uh, put ourselves over the top of this book and start making it say what we want to. Like, we have to be under the head of Christ. And our elder team, we talk through this passage, we wrestle through it and say, we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. And if we start elevating ourselves over and just saying what we want to, that dishonors the name of Jesus. My goal in studying through 1 Corinthians 11 is not how can I make this say what I want it to, but letting the truth of the scripture confront me. And so that's where I get into this. Well, I want to just real quick talk to the men of the church because this is where I was confronted. Men, you know what we are really good at? not spiritual leadership, not leading in a God-glorifying direction. What we're really good at is passivity and blame. We see this in Genesis 3 in the garden. Remember Adam. Remember Adam when God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Do not eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Adam do? He watches Eve eat the fruit. First sin, passivity. Second sin, God says, hey, Adam, what happened here? What does Adam say? He says, well, this woman, she did it. Okay, so passivity and then blame. Blame shifting. It wasn't my fault. She did it. And he takes it to the next level because he says, this woman that you put here did it. So it's her fault, but also, God, it's kind of your fault too because you're the one that put her here, right? This is, this is what we do as men. We're passive, and then we shift the blame. So here's what I want to say. The way that we fight passivity is by taking the initiative. The way that we take the initiative is by becoming the greatest servant in the household. So we, in your household, if you were to ask if you have a family, if you have kids, if you were to ask your kids, like, Who's the greatest servant in this house? Who would they say? Men, our job, our calling is to be the greatest servant, to be like Jesus Christ. I don't know everything that spiritual leadership means in, in your life. I know it at least means this. Men, start showing up to stuff, right? When there's a 6 a.m. discipleship meeting, like show up, right? Church, I know there are People, this is the online service. I know there are great reasons to be at home, right? If you're immunocompromised, you're, you're, you're trying to stay away from COVID, I get that. But I want to say, there are women. I talked to a woman last week. She's like, I want to be in church, but my husband. He likes waking up the coffee in the bathroom and just getting out of bed and just turning it on because it's nice and warm at home. I'm saying, dudes, step up your game. Right? You're discipling your family. You would never do that with a lot of other things in your life. I watch men that are so committed to getting their kids to their athletic events and their practices, right? Wrestling. Dude, you're going to be there. 
5.30 a.m., we are going to have you there and early. 5.20. Swimming, softball, baseball. Like, if you treated your sports team like you treat God, your child would be kicked off the team. Dudes, step it up. Start showing up. Okay? That's like a super low bar. Uh, There's other areas of your life. I know women that want to tithe. They want to give to the church, but they can't because their husband is more committed to his golf clubs, to his season tickets, right? To his entertainment, to his leisure, to his vacation, whatever it is. And I'm saying, men, take the initiative in sacrificial giving, joyful giving. That's what God is calling us to. These are a couple examples, not to even mention just moral purity, sexual purity, pursuing purity. And here's where I got poked this week was, you know, all the stuff I talked about, education on the front end, like how could that school district be teaching our kids these things? You know what I've done? You know what passivity looks like in the errant household? I respond to all that stuff with number one, outrage, and then followed by good luck, Letha, raising the kids and educating them. You know, I'm really busy and I don't have time for teaching our second grader grammar. I think I have a second grader. I don't even know what grade she's in. Uh, It's terrible. They always make fun of me because I don't know their grades and all that stuff. And, And I'm saying, oh, I feel God saying, Mark, the education of your children is not the public school's fault. That's on you. And if you're gonna push that aside, that's called parental malpractice for you just to be like, oh, somebody else is going to do that. Like the formation of my children's minds is one of my main responsibilities. That's on me. So men, second grade grammar, uh, that's what it is. Maybe it's helping with simple math. Maybe it's helping with algebra, calculus, stuff that I have. I don't even remember that stuff. But that's on me. That's my application. That's my job. Okay, women, I want to say to you, I have no idea what to tell you about this, okay? (laughs) Honestly, it feels a little off and inappropriate for me to just stand up here and tell you what this should look like in your life. I would say find an older woman. In Titus 2, it talks about the older women teaching the younger. Um, Just last point, we're already over time. Here it is. Uh, by way of application, remember your audience. Remember your audience. In the church, practice submission. In the world, practice compassion. Just a little bit of false dichotomy here, but just bear with me and understand what I'm saying. Uh, In the church, practice submission. What I'm saying is, this passage is for the church. Don't go tell your boss. Don't go tell your government leaders. Don't go tell social media. Don't expect unbelievers to live like Christians. Of course, we would expect... The, church, the, the world to have those 13 principles, right? Uh, Romans 1 tells us that's one of the most obvious ways that humans suppress the truth about God is in their expression of their sexuality. So we're not surprised by this. What the world needs is not your condemnation, but your compassion, right? So in here, we order ourselves under 1 Corinthians 11. Out there, we have compassion and we 
Understand, have you ever met someone with gender dysphoria, someone who feels trapped in the wrong body? It's terrible. And when you understand the struggles that people have, you can even have compassion for your school board because you realize those 13 principles are basically suicide prevention because they're trying to help people through their issues and they don't know how. But you as a believer, you know Jesus. You know Jesus, the greatest authority in the world who used all of his power to get on his knees and wash feet. That's what we do as Christians. So as we leave this place, we love people and we just model Jesus to them and we serve them and we love them. One of our elders was saying, it's easy to train our children to be snarky and to roll their eyes when the LGBTQ that's not the Jesus way. What we want to do is model how to love people where they're at and to show them Jesus.